invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I'd also encourage you to um, place your finger in Exodus chapter 12. We'll be looking at that very shortly. So first Luke 22 and then Exodus chapter 12. If you remember, we are in the final week of uh, Christ's life before the cross. Uh, the text this morning, this, this morning is probably uh, taking place on Thursday, most, uh, almost certainly taking place on Thursday. And uh, Jesus is preparing to have the Last Supper with his uh, disciples. Judas has already agreed to betray Christ. And we're going to pick it up in verse 7 and read through verse 23. Let's give our attention to the Lord's word this morning. Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went out and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me was with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Our God in heaven, we come to you now because you are the God of the word, and we thank you that this word, Lord, is able to feed our soul. We ask that the spirit then would accompany the preaching of it, uh, that um, we would be fed and satisfied today with your goodness and kindness and grace and love for us. All in Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray it in his name. Amen. This evening, we are... um, Intending to celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we do once a month here at Harvest Church. And so this morning, uh, as we've been moving through Luke, it just was appropriate that we came to this text, and um, we're going to be using it as a preparatory sermon. If uh, you are from a a Dutch Reformed or maybe a Scottish Presbyterian background, uh, you're familiar with the concept of a preparatory sermon. Uh, as a boy growing up in the Christian Reformed Church, uh, every, uh, the Sunday before we would celebrate the Lord's Supper, there would even be a form that we would read, uh, and it sort of uh, just highlighted the significance uh, of the Supper. 
that something important was going to happen and we needed to prepare ourselves so that we would uh, eat and drink in a worthy manner, not uh, bringing judgment upon ourselves as Paul warns in 1 Corinthians. Well, that has sort of fallen out of practice. Uh, I've, not, um, I've not done that here. One of the reasons is because we have the Lord's Supper more frequently than I did growing up. And so to, to read the form every month again, I think would be... Uh, I'm not sure we would hear it anymore, but there's a, one of the uh, unfortunate byproducts of, of not having a preparatory service is that it could be easy for us, and I think it, it has been somewhat easy for us, to uh, fail to um, really appreciate the significance of the Lord's Supper. What exactly is it? It's something we do every month, and I think it's meaningful to us, but I'm not sure that we really grasp the profound significance of it and, and how God intends it to function in our Christian life. And so hopefully this morning as, as we study Jesus' words, we'll gain a fresh appreciation for the, the wonder, the beauty of the Lord's Supper and what, how God intends it to actually be a benefit to your soul and to mine. One of the things that we come to, and we come to a text like this, as I was just studying this week, is um, sensing the, the handicap of being a Gentile living in America in 2017. Uh, there are things that, that we don't see that the uh, first century readers, particularly those who are Jewish, would immediately see in the text. Uh, things like... Um, when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, they would sense the shock of it. We don't sense really the shock of it at all. When Jesus said that he um, had the authority to forgive sins, uh, a first century Jew would, would immediately recognize uh, what an outrageous claim that was, what a blasphemous thing that was, unless Jesus were God. Uh, for us, it's an interesting story. Well, we, I think in a similar sense, we'd we don't really grasp the significance of what happens here in Luke 22 with, without an understanding of the Passover that a, that a Jew clearly would have. So let's uh, try to make up for that handicap at least a bit, and let's go to Exodus chapter 12 and just remind ourselves uh, what the Passover was about. Exodus chapter 12, where we obviously have the first Passover, and I'm not going to take a long time here, but just I want to highlight some things because the Passover, of all the feasts that Israel would celebrate, is uh, the most messianic, the one that most clearly portrays uh, Christ. And, and as we're reading through it, just encourage you to uh, pay attention to the things that point specifically to Christ. We're going to begin reading at verse 1, and I'll read it through verse 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt... So they're in bondage still. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It will be the first month of the year for you. And so God is saying this is going to be a new age. A new calendar is going to be formed right here. Because Israel is going to leave the old. Uh, all things are becoming new. A new age. A new eon. Tell all the congregation of Israel on that, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. 
So every, every household, uh, you see covenant theology here working. Households uh, are a key part of this, and they take a lamb for themselves on the 10th day. They identify with that lamb. It has to be, verse 5, notice, a lamb without blemish. A male a year old, they take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And so there's going to be a slaughter of these lambs. The, the ritual way would be the, uh, this would be the, the, the only way that was allowed is um, you, you take the lamb's neck and you slit its throat and all the blood pours out. Verse 7, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So it has to be applied blood, not just poured out, but applied. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Uh, They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And so notice here, uh, the lamb is to be roasted over fire, a sign of judgment. It is to, well, all of it is to be roasted, none of it is to be boiled, and none of it is to be left over. Uh, This is God's Passover. This is uh, God's set apart lamb, and if there are parts left over, that, that you can't repurpose it for sandwiches tomorrow, right? It's, it's God's lamb. It belongs exclusively to him, to his purposes. And so whatever is left over, whatever you is, uh, it, it can't be eaten, uh, it has to be then burned with fire in the morning. Uh, notice also here, none of the lamb is going to see decay. None of it's thrown into the garbage heap. None of it's buried. There's no decay for this lamb. It is offered up completely to God. Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And this is not a time for a leisurely meal. This is uh, getting ready to go. And so the unleavened bread, it's, it's, it signifies we don't have time to let the bread rise. And there's no yeast in the bread. Yeast often in the Bible a sign of um, something that sort of saturates, makes its way through. And so it's often used as sin that, that gets in your life and then just spreads and spreads and grows. And so uh, it's unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Um, this, is, this is to remind them of the bitterness of their trials and the bitterness of the judgment, but there's freedom coming. A verse, let's continue on. Uh, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so the blood has to be applied to the doors. Um, that night, God is going to make a distinction, but it is not between Egyptian blood or Abrahamic or Hebraic blood. 
What's running through your veins isn't going to save you. The only blood that matters is the lamb, the Passover blood, the blood of the lamb. And if that blood is applied to the doorpost, that house is saved. If it is not on the doorpost, that house experiences the same judgment as all the Egyptians. It's a clear sign that God's making a distinction in judgment and the difference all depends on the applied blood of the lamb. Then for verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And so God uh, gives this sign to them, a sacrament uh, for the old, old covenant, and um, it, it, it's, a, it's a sacrament that reminds them over and over again of the great act of deliverance, and by eating the lamb, they are participating in faith again in the saving acts of God. They're expressing their faith that the God who led them out of the bondage then is a God who is with them still and is going to be, be with them until the final kingdom of God comes and, and they feast at the banquet of Abraham. So it's both looking back and looking forward, but they participate in the meal. They eat it. They ingest it to show that they are um, in union then with this saving God. So that's the Passover, and it would be celebrated every year. Obviously, it would be a time where families uh, together go up to Jerusalem. There are certain psalms, the, um, the songs of ascent, uh, Psalms 115 and follow, 113 and following particularly would be, would be sung during the Passover. Uh, if you remember when Jesus was 12 years old, he went up with his parents to celebrate uh, Passover and to go there uh, to the, the, the temple and with, with family and friends. Um, the, 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 essential, the essential thing of the Passover, of course, is then um, this, this blood, this lamb that needs to be sacrificed. And so the, the gospel in its Old Testament form is so wonderfully portrayed here in uh, Exodus chapter 12. Well, now Jesus gathers his disciples uh, because he's going to celebrate this meal with them one more time. In fact, this is the last Passover that is going to be celebrated because Christ is going to fulfill it. We see in verse 7 through 13, it's a fascinating um, revelation here of as Jesus tells the disciples to make preparations. So he instructs two of them. Peter and John, uh, go and prepare the Passover. That means they would have to go find a lamb. They would be sold at the temple. Of uh, The chief priests are making a nice profit on this, but it, would, it is easier, actually, than, than if you're traveling a long distance to have a lamb there for you. And so you would go and buy one. Uh, they would need to buy the uh, get the lamb. They would have to get the, her the, the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. There would need to be wine for the meal. Uh, the lamb itself would have to be roasted over a fire. There are preparations, things that have to, uh, take place and Jesus says go prepare the Passover for us well the disciples Peter and John asked the logical question where they don't have a, a home in Jerusalem uh, they're, they're spending their nights on Mount Olivet they, they don't have a condo where they're staying they, so where do you want us to do this it's a perfectly logical uh, question and the next uh, verses read like something out of a spy novel. As there, there's all this mystery and intrigue. Jesus says to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says, Where's the guest room that I meet the Passover with my disciples? 
This, this reads, it's just, it's full of intrigue. This, this reads sort of like, um, go to the corner of 11th and 43rd and you'll see a man in a, in a black fedora with a newspaper under his left arm and you just follow him. That's how it reads. And that's exactly the intent of it. Uh, Jesus um, tells Peter and John to go uh, and, and, and see this man who's carrying a water jar. Now, uh, that might not seem uh, unusual, but in fact, it, w- it would be unusual as uh, in those days, women carried the water. Um, men would, uh, if, they had, if there was something to be carried, they would carry the wineskins, uh, but the, the women carried the water. So this would be, this would be a somewhat unusual, not completely out of ordinary, but but. but Somewhat unusual. He would be able, they would be able to identify this man. And, and Jesus says, well, just didn't go and follow him. Now, why doesn't Jesus just give them the address? He clearly knows where they're going to eat the Lord's Supper. Um, I've always assumed that this is another miracle of Jesus where uh, these things just sort of supernaturally happen. I, I, as I've studied this, I'm much more inclined to think that Jesus has prepared this. That he's instructed this man to be there uh, at the gate of the city waiting for them. And he's talked to the owner of the house. Jesus eagerly desires to eat this Passover with his disciples. It would not be a surprise at all to know that he has, um, without their knowing, prepared this exact event. Either way, why doesn't he just give them the address? Go to... uh, so-and-so's house, uh, here's the address, here's the street, and, um, and, and the room will be ready. Uh, well, the answer, I think, to that clearly is that uh, Judas is standing right there. Jesus knows that Judas has already agreed to betray him. Judas is looking for an opportune time, and the Passover meal would be an ideal opportune time. The streets would be empty as all the people are gathered with their families celebrating the Passover meal, or at least it would be late in the evening, and so um, the, the crowds wouldn't be there. Jesus would be alone with his disciples. This would be the perfect time and place to easily arrest Jesus. And so Judas is, is, is standing there, most likely on tiptoes, waiting when the disciples say, where? That's exactly what Judas wants to know. But Jesus doesn't tell him where. He just gives these, these, these instructions. And so there's no possible way that Judas could have, uh, could have known where they were going to be going. Once again, you just see that Jesus is in complete control of all the events surrounding his life. Jesus is going to uh, Jerusalem to offer up his life. He's, he's not a victim of circumstances here. He's ordaining and directing these events. And so we read, they went and found it just as he had told, him, uh, told them, and they prepared the Passover. Well, now we come to the meal itself. And Jesus uh, uses this a very strong language that he has uh, eagerly desired to eat this meal with them. In fact, in the in the Greek, uh, the word for strong desire, longing, is used twice for emphasis. So, with great desire, I have greatly desired to eat this meal with you. Jesus is, wants them to understand his his deep eagerness, his longing. To do this with them, to have this Passover meal with them. Now, he's undoubtedly shared Passover meals with them before, but, but this one he's, he's most eager, most earnest, and, and we understand some of the context of this because he's going to suffer. 
I've, I've eagerly desired, with great desire, to eat this meal with you before I suffer, for, because I'm not going to eat it with you again until it finds its completion in the kingdom of God. Why does he so eagerly long for this and desire this? What is the eagerness of Jesus about? I think uh, on the first part, it's, it's for their benefit. It's for their benefit. There's so much Jesus needs to teach them yet. He needs to show them right now in, the, in this critical hour, as, as it is just hours from now that he will be arrested and then some hours later be crucified. And if you look at John 13 through 17, you'll see all that Christ has to teach his disciples there that evening. John 13 through 17. Jesus, uh, John begins that chapter saying, having loved his own who were uh, in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to perfection. He loved them, he loved them with all the love of his heart. As he gathered the men, that, that must have been the sense in the room, the, the, the deep deep love of Christ as he begins to first wash their feet, takes on the, the, the role of a servant and washes their feet. It's such an, a humble, humble, kind, loving act. And he tells them, he says, I'm going to be betrayed and I want you to know that it's going to happen with, with one of you who, who eats with me so that when it happens, you will believe that I am he. They'll understand that Jesus wasn't a victim, but Jesus was organizing and ordaining these things. Uh, John 14, I'm going to go away, he says. They need to know that. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. Philip, of course, says, uh, and Jesus says, you know the way where I'm going. Philip says, we don't even know where you're going. How could we possibly know the way? Well, Jesus says, I am the way. And I am the truth. And I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You know me, don't you? And, and if you know me, you know the Father. They needed to know that. And then Jesus tells them he's going to send a helper, a comforter, one who's going to teach them and lead them and guide them into this truth. John 14, verse 15 and following. And then in chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. You need to, you need to abide in me. By faith, remain in me and abide in my love for you. Because if you do that, you will bear much fruit for the glory of God the Father. We have the high priestly prayer. We have the instructions about the world's going to hate you. You're going to have a lot of trouble in the world, but don't, don't lose heart because I've overcome the world. All these things, you see, Jesus has to tell these men. And so he eagerly desires to eat this meal with them. But it's also for his blessings, for their benefit and for his, his, his blessing. You see, it's clear that John wants us to know that, that Jesus now shows his love to these men. Jesus loves them, and love always desires expression. If you're a, a young man uh, and you just have a, a, a passion for this particular young lady, there's something, there's something about your emotions, your feelings for her that you want to tell her. You don't dare, of course, but you desperately want to tell her. <clears throat> uh, Jesus loves these men. Love desires expression. And, and this, is the, this is the meal where Jesus is going to show his great love for them in a very unique way. 
He's chosen these men by name. He knows their individual voices. He knows how they laugh. Um, he, he knows uh, their weaknesses, each individually. He knows their, their strengths, too. He's given them to them. He knows, he knows exactly how they're going to be used in the future as eyewitnesses and, and that their testimony is going to be the foundation of the church's bride. Uh, and so Jesus gathers these men to this table. It's a, it's a table of, of communion and, and love. There, there's some there are some meals that you don't forget. I hope you've had a meal like that where you've been together maybe with family or, 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 or with dear, dear friends and, and you, you get around a, a, a table and it's, you, you have a sense that I'll never, I won't forget this. I've had several of those. Uh, it's, and it's, it's usually with family, sometimes with old friends. I remember when... Um, I don't know, so the year will escape me quickly here, but uh, when Max and Emily got engaged, um, long story, well, it's a different time, but, but we were uh, up at uh, Lake George on, on vacation, and, and Max obviously was there, <clears throat> and uh, asked Emily to be his, uh, his wife, and um, so we were all thrilled, and well, we knew it was going to happen, so we were there, and we, um, uh, the whole family was there, and we had a meal that night, we grilled up some steaks and had great wine. And that little cabin was full of laughter and joy and great food. And I had the clear sense, I'll never forget this night. It was so rich, so good. I hope you've had meals like that. The Lord's Supper was that kind of a meal for these men. They had, they had a sense that something significant was happening. That, that, that this was as rich and deep and profound as it could be. And it was that for, for Christ. He's, he's going to the cross. He's, he's going to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. And, and he loves uh, these men. He loves to be with these men. He's blessed by their presence. He, he, you can imagine Jesus sitting at the table and looking around. And he knows Judas is right here. But he, but he knows all the rest of them. And he can see them talking together. And, 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 and they're laughing or, or maybe engaged in a serious conversation. Or, you know, Andrew, he's always doing that. He's, 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 he's asking these questions. And, and, and maybe Thomas is, is scoffing at something. Whatever it might be. He knows these men. And he, he embraces this moment with them. I, I just, I don't want to miss, I have eagerly, with great desire, I've eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. I wonder, if it, has it ever occurred to you that the, the Lord has no less delight in his table today? Is there any reason to think that Jesus would be less concerned about eating with his, his children, his, his, his brothers and sisters in the faith, his, his bride, today than he, than, than he did then? Would, would he have less interest in meeting with us? I think that we often just overlook uh, Christ's desire and Christ's pleasure in the Lord's table. We think about the benefit maybe it has for us, and if we don't see a whole lot of benefit, it, it just feels maybe perfunctory, um, or, you know, something that, that is supposed to stir our emotions in some way. You know, we're, we're, we're interested, but it's not, it's not really that big a deal. I think the evidence of that is that it's, it's very easy for us to miss the Lord's Supper. Uh, particularly if it's in an evening service. Some of you simply won't be there. But others of us, if we're just tired, if it's, um, we've had a big week, or even if we have the Lord's Supper and you're here, you're here physically, but we're not here, we're not present. 
We're not engaged. But what if, what if it was precious to the Lord? What if he eagerly desired to have this meal with you? And, and what if that were true because he loves you? And he, and he desires to share himself with you? What, what if it's because if he's commanded us to do this so that he could, he could be with us in a special way and, and express his love for us in a special way? I think there's every reason to believe that's exactly the case. I was listening to a sermon by uh, Sinclair Ferguson. He says every relationship needs this, of course. He says uh, if people come and, and say they don't need expressions, uh, you know, they don't need a lot of that physical stuff, that, that tangible stuff. Uh, he said, well, you know, in your marriage, I'd just like you to do a test. Uh, go for a month. With, you know, tell your wife you love her, maybe from time to time, but no affection. In terms of never hold her hand, never put your arm around her, don't embrace her, never kiss her, no physical, tangible expressions of desire for her, love for her in any way. And then at the end of the month, you just come back and tell me, when did the blow-up happen? Because you see, that, that's, a, that's a marriage that's, that's missing something profound. Well, in the Lord's Supper... You see, Christ is not interested in sort of a cool, distant relationship. It's, we have the word, the, the wonder of the word, and yet Jesus tells us that, that the word is it's sufficient, and yet Jesus wants something more. He wants to communicate by the word and the sacrament something physical, something tangible, that he loves us. He wants to express his love to us. I'd like to note then, as we continue on, how does he do that in the Lord's Supper? And we'll, 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 we'll pick it up here. There are two elements here, of course, the wine and the bread. Um, I don't have time to go into all this. It's a fascinating study. If you studied the Passover, the, the meal, you'll note there were four cups that would be lifted up, the cups of salvation, related to the four promises that God gave to Moses in Exodus 6, uh, 6 and 7. Uh, the first cup is the cup of thanksgiving, and Jesus lifts the, it up, and he, and he gives a prayer of thanks. So that's exactly what would happen. Uh, thanking God for his promise to rescue Israel, Israel from Egypt. And then there would be the, the cup of judgment uh, where the Israelites remember God's promise to, to judge Egypt and to, to deliver Israel through the judgment that's going to fall on Egypt. Luke doesn't mention the second cup. He does mention the third. The third is the cup of redemption. It would be, sung, uh, it would be lifted up and drank uh, after the meal, after the lamb had been eaten to commemorate and celebrate the blood of the lamb that had been poured out and had been applied for their redemption, to purchase them for God. That's the cup of redemption. And so that's the cup that Jesus now lifts and says to his disciples things, something they've never heard at any Passover meal they've ever been in their entire life. Because Jesus lifts it up and says, this cup is... The new covenant in my blood. Saying as clearly as he possible could say, I am the Passover lamb. I am the lamb that must be slaughtered. My sacrifice is what was foreshadowed and prefigured in the Old Testament Passover lamb. My blood is the only blood that can protect you from the judgment of God. Judgment is going to come. Where are you going to hide? 
What's going to be your refuge? There's only one. There's no other lamb, no other name, no other hope in heaven or earth or sea, no other hiding place from guilt and shame, none beside thee. And that through this sacrifice, there's going to be a new covenant inaugurated, a new calendar, in a sense, created. Things are going to be made new. And so that's the cup we find here, the cup of thanksgiving, and then the cup after they had eaten, that's the third cup of redemption. And then the bread of remembrance. This is my body, which is given for you. This is my body. Of course, those words have been the, the, the focus of fierce debate, both uh, between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church, also the Reformers and the Lutheran Church. As, there's, um, as, as they um, want to say, the Roman Catholic Church, that this becomes, in the miracle of transubstantiation, that, that the bread, as it's elevated, when the priest elevates it, it becomes literally the body of Jesus Christ. Well, uh, I think it's best to just simply say, what would the disciples have thought Jesus meant? The disciples who were around the table clearly would not have uh, sensed that this bread suddenly had become part of the physical body of Jesus. He's holding it. It's clearly not his physical body then. It's not his physical body now, ever. But what Jesus, you see, is, is saying is that um, there's a symbolic and sacramental relationship that's real. Do this in remembrance of me, I think, helps us get an understanding of what he's about. So this is the command. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus does two things here. He, he explicitly ties his body, and his blood to the bread and the wine. He wants them to know this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and this bread is my body given for you. But not in a literal, wooden, uh, physical way, but in a true, spiritual way. Uh, and I think, the, again, the, the clue is, do this in remembrance. It's, I think it's helpful to, to, to hear this as, Take this as a remembrance of me. I think that's how we would say it today. There are things that a remembrance is a something. It's an object that's explicitly, tangibly connected to an event or a person. So uh, I remember growing up uh, in our home, there was always uh, on a, a coffee table prominently displayed, there was a, a picture, um, uh, five and a half by seven, um, with a plaque on the bottom with two uh, bronzed baby shoes and, and the name Bobby on the, on the plaque. And there was a picture of Bobby, my older brother that was killed when he was a year and a half hit by a car. And that was in, then in our home as a permanent remembrance that there was a member of our family who wasn't here. And those shoes were Bobby's shoes. He wore those shoes. And so there's a tangible, we didn't just hear stories about Bobby. We didn't even just have a photograph of Bobby. We, we had something tangible, real. Bobby's little feet had gone in those little baby shoes. Those are Bobby's shoes. It, it, there's a connection there. Uh, some people keep a locket of hair of a loved one, maybe who's passed away. <clears throat> and and it's, it's, it's more than a story. It's, it's more even than a photograph. It's a tangible something you can touch that is not just a remembrance of a someone, but a connection to that someone. And that's exactly what the wine and the bread are meant to be. 
Jesus says, take this, this is my body, take this as a remembrance. You see, it's a tangible link to the person of Jesus Christ and to his body and his blood. But they're not, you see, remembrances of a loved one who is absent, but a living Lord who is present, a Savior who is near. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so when we gather, you see, around the Lord's table, the table that he eagerly desires to eat with us, Jesus speaks to us in the bread, in the wine. And Jesus says, I am here. It's my body. It's my blood. I am here. I loved you when I gave my life for you. I love you still. I will love you until I come and take you home to be with me. So take this and do this. Remember and believe. It's what the Lord wants us to see and taste at his table. His beautiful, steadfast love. Do this until I come again. I've loved, I loved you then as I went to the cross. I love you now. I would love you to the end. <clears throat> there's bread and there's wine. What about the lamb? It would have been a prominent on the table there at the Lord's Supper. Well, of course, Jesus doesn't mention the lamb because he is the lamb. <clears throat> and the last lamb will be slain as he goes to the cross. No more sacrificing of lambs. The blood that actually atones for sin is going to be poured out. No need for any more sacrifice. He paid it all, once for all. And, and then maybe the, the most important words in, in the thing, in the whole text this is for you. I don't have time to go into all that. I just want you to think about what Jesus is saying there. This is, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for you. He didn't have to say that. But he meant to say it. And he means it for you. With, with all your unique sins and temptations, your fears, your shame, your, your trials... For you, specifically you. That's why you need to take it. You need to eat. You need to drink because you, in doing so, you're receiving the truth of Jesus Christ for you. This isn't just your parents' faith or your spouse's faith. This is, this is your faith. This is your Savior. And you, you take this Jesus for you. And then taking him for yourself. Take his love. For you, his grace to you, his promise to you, his presence for you. Jesus Christ went to the cross to have a relationship with you, a saving, loving, personal relationship where he rescued you from the bondage of sin and death and promises to make you one day perfect in his presence. It's for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how great is your love for us. How easily we forget it and live our life as though it did not exist. And yet it is the, it's the fountainhead of all your grace and kindness to us. 
Lord Jesus, we need to hear again today of your love, not some sentimental, affectionate thoughts that you have, but a love that brought you to a cross where you rescued us from the judgment that we deserved. A love that enabled us to be made new, a new covenant, a new heart. A love that sent the Holy Spirit so that we could commune truly with you, our Savior. A love that is able to justify us and sanctify us and one day glorify us and has committed itself to that end. A love that is with us, never leaves us, even in the darkest hours. And so, Lord Jesus, I, <clears throat> I pray that you would give us faith to see it and receive it. And tonight, as we come to the Lord's table, I pray you would give us, Lord, that same eager desire to eat with you, to receive your expressions of love for us, and to be convinced it's true that you, the Son of God, love us, and you gave your life for us. And we are now your people. You are God. And one day you will dwell with us and we with you. And nothing can separate us from that love. Lord, bless these things to us now and tonight again as we come. Father, we just pray for your peace to be on us, your people. In Jesus' name. Amen.